Let's pray together. Father, we thank you once again for this time to come together to open your word. We honor you because your word is held even above your very name, you say. And so we're grateful that we have it. I'm grateful that we can hear your mind and understand your truth, that we might be changed by it. May that happen to us this very day as we study your word together, that we might be changed not only in our heart and our mind, but into our very behavior. We might be like Christ, conformed in every way to his image. For your glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's that time of our worship where we get to worship God through the study of His Word. So I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me and turn in them to Romans chapter 12. It's been a wonderful time that we have been having over the last several months really studying through this passage. It's really amazing to me, and it really shouldn't be amazing, uh, but it is, that the more we return to this portion of Scripture here in Romans chapter 12, the more and more we see in it that has implications for our very lives. The writer of Hebrews said that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. He said that it divides down to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And as we have been looking into the words of the Spirit of God through the pen of the Apostle Paul, that has been what has been happening to us. That has been what he is doing in us. It's getting down to the nitty-gritty in our lives, and it is challenging us at the deepest levels of our thinking and of our action. So that you and I, who are believers in Jesus Christ, so that we might be actually conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that we might be like Christ. To be conformed to His image is to be transformed in our minds, transformed in our action, so that the way we think, we think like Christ. The way we act, we act like Christ. We heard last Lord's Day by hearing of the spiritual heights that God is taking us through by taking us to the lowest places. The place of humility. Now I want to think about this together. God is allowing... God is allowing and bringing about circumstances within each one of our lives, each and every day, each and every moment. He is gifting us with spiritual endowments. By faith in Jesus Christ, He has given to us spiritual gifting so that through the interaction of those things in our lives, the spiritual gifting that we have with by means of God gifting it through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been through that interaction that we might become Christ-like in every way by making us humble before Him. Now this is never needed so much than in the church. Humility. 
The church is a place whereby we are commanded, not suggested. This is a command of God. We are commanded by God as Christians to use the gifting that He has given to us. And we are to use it, we are commanded to use it, as we read already, for the building up of the whole body. And yet at the same time, this is the place whereby our flesh is tempted to be exalted. Where we have desires to be exalted. That's the reason, or at least one of the reasons, that this section here in Romans chapter 12 and verses 3 through 8 ought to have so much comfort for our souls. Because Paul tells us just how it is that we can begin to live in this realm of humility that God wants us to live in. God wants his people like his son. His son was humble. God wants us humble, and here we're learning just how we can live within that realm of humility. And so Paul, in verses 3 through 8, began last Lord's Day, as we saw, with himself. Words concerning himself. And it's interesting to me that from the very start, we need to understand that every one of us needs humbling. None of us have arrived. None of us are so mature, so like Christ in our Christian lives, so there already that none of us needs humbling. All of us need humbling. Some of us need to have more humbling than others might need to have. Some of us need to have deeper lows, and therefore some of us have higher positions because of that. So that God can accomplish His work of humility in us. You say, well, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean that the greater the gift, the greater the need for being humbled. The greater the gift, the greater the need to be humbled. I want to show us this by way of example this morning, just as we begin, by turning over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 may be a familiar passage to some of us in reference to the Apostle Paul's life, because it's a very interesting book in the life of the Apostle Paul. The entire letter is an interesting letter that Paul felt necessary in his own heart to write to the Corinthian believers because the Corinthian church was a church that Paul had planted, a church that he was given the privilege of birthing, if you will, and a church that he loved because of that, loved very dearly. And yet that church, after Paul had gone, had been infiltrated by false teachers, and these false teachers were introducing to the people of those churches false doctrines. And within those false doctrines were remarks about the founding pastor of the church, who was Paul. Disparaging comments about the Apostle Paul himself. And Paul, sadly, finds it necessary within 2 Corinthians to defend himself about his gifting, what God had given him. And so in chapter 12 and verse 1, he says, boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. 
But I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul says, I know a man. You want to hear boasting? You want to hear about me? You want to hear about my gifting? I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, I know how he was caught up into paradise. And he heard inexpressible words which a man is not even permitted to speak. On behalf of such man will I boast, but on behalf of, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except in regard to my weaknesses. I don't wish to boast. If I do wish to boast, I shall not be foolish, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I'll refrain from this, so that no one may credit me with more than he sees in me or hears in me. Paul says, listen, I know somebody who had this great thing happen to him. Paul's, of course, speaking to himself and the vision that God had given him about the glories in the third heaven that he can't even speak of. We have no writings about this other than this little account of Paul. Paul told no one because it was words he couldn't even speak. Paul says, listen, I have things to boast about. I mean, God has done special things with me, but I don't want to do that. And then Paul says in verse 7, and because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... Because of the great gifting that God gave me in this area, because He allowed me to see this, because of the surpassing greatness of these things, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Great gift that Paul had, great vision that Paul had, and yet great humbling. Paul needed in light of that. You see, the greater the gifting, the greater the need for humility. And some, even in this church, Fellowship Bible Church, some here have been gifted with some incredible spiritual gifts. We all have gifts, and some have had incredible spiritual gifts given to them. Why? Well, partly because God always knows what is best for the church. But more so, He knows exactly what we need to be humbled. God knows exactly what each and every one of us needs in order to reach the place where we're Christ-like in our humility. And listen, we must never forget that God's goodness God's goodness, God's gifting to us can be, because our flesh loves to have it so, can be the very soil in which our own fleshly pride loves to grow. And God desires us to be low. And so we see this happening in the Apostle Paul's life. And so when we go back to Romans chapter 12, Remember in verses 3 through 8, Paul says, I'm exercising my gift. 
I'm exercising what God has given me by way of apostleship. I am an apostle. I want you to listen to what I have to say, but know this, the only reason I'm in this position is because of grace. Because of grace. Remember that in verse 3? It's through the grace given to me that I say to every man among you. It's through the undeserved favor of God that I speak what I speak to you. Therefore, because of that, because you see that reality in me, that I understand grace was given to me, you need to understand grace is given to you. Therefore, I speak to everyone among you, don't have a hyper self-estimation of yourself. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. In other words, don't think you're something no matter what you are by way of your spiritual giftedness. Don't get the idea that, hey, listen, this place isn't going to float if you're not around. That is simply to say, in the context of chapter 12, that is simply to say that if we're going to have a renewed mind, if we're going to have, as Paul has told us in verses 1 and 2, if we're going to have a mind that is renovated, a mind that is thinking like Christ, then this place that we need to start with, the room that we need to start with by way of the renovation is the room of self. The room of self. The room whereby we love ourselves, our own self-estimation. What we think about who we are. Because none of us needs to be told to love ourselves more. We love ourselves enough. Paul says we cannot think about ourselves in such a way that it becomes detrimental to the giftedness and the gifting of others. Let me say that again. We cannot think about ourselves in such a way that it, our own self-estimation, becomes detrimental to the giftedness or the gifting of others. You say, what do you mean? Well, the only way that we must think about ourselves, no matter how visible or how unvisible our gifting may be, no matter how in front of the people we are or how behind the scenes we are and everywhere in between, the the thinking that we must have is to remember that what we are, we are because of grace. We are what we are because of grace. We have to have that in our right mind. We have to have this sound judgment that Paul says here in verse 3. To think rightly about yourself is to have the right thinking, the right mind of thinking when you think about your own gifting and your use of your gifting. In other words, each one has been given a gift by means of our believing upon Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the idea that he means when he says, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. The word is anarthrous in the original language. In other words, there's not a definite article there when it says a measure of faith in the English language, but I think it, it, it really is carrying the idea that you've been gifted by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the idea. That when you believed in Jesus Christ, God gifted you. So each one of us has been, been given a gift by means of believing upon Jesus Christ. 
And we've, that gift is to be exercised, it is to be used within the church, you and I amongst us together, and our flesh desires to see that exalted. Our flesh desires for us to get accolades, for us to be praised, for us to be pumped up, for others to say, boy, you're such a great person. And yet God, the way of crushing our own high-mindedness about ourselves is to remember and continually preach to ourselves the reality of grace. Listen, when you exercise your gifts in the church and, and nobody says thank you, that may, in fact, be wrong that people should be thankful or to be thankful for all things, right? But that shouldn't upset you. That should never upset us. Why? Because I am what I am because of grace. I didn't do it anyway. We are what we are because of grace. This is a principle we must keep in our minds. This is a principle that all the gospel writers and all the writers of Scripture kept in mind. This was a favorite principle of the Apostle Peter as he returned to it time after time after time when he wrote. Most likely because Jesus himself had said to Peter in the Gospels, I'm praying for you, Peter. Why? Because Satan desires to sift you. Man, I'm glad God's never said that to me. Probably doesn't have to because I'm more weak than Peter ever was. Seems easy for me to think I should be exalted. Satan wants to sift you, and when you come through it, Peter, encourage your brothers. I'm going to pray for you, Peter. And when, when, when it's over, when the trials pass, and use that, use what you've learned to encourage your brothers. I think that's why Peter went back to this over and over again. So when he writes, he's encouraging us in this very principle. And I'll just show you this really quickly. First Peter chapter 1. I'll just read a few verses for us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. How? Keep sober, that is, be right-minded. Keep sober in your spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be of sound judgment. There's that right-mindedness, sober for the purpose of prayer. Right? Be right-minded, think rightly, have your mind right concerning who you are. Why? Because the end of all things is near. God could come at any moment. Chapter 5, verse 8, be sober. Be on the alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Boy, Peter knew that. Jesus had told him that. Satan wants to sift you. You need to have your thinking right, Peter. You need to be right-minded. You see, we can get away. We we, We can't really get away with this truth. We can't get away from it. It's all over the place. Every time you turn to the Scriptures, there it is. Again, grace, 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 grace. 
And so if our gifting is going to be used properly, if it is going to be used to the glory of God as God has intended it, then we have to remember that we are what we are by undeserved favor. It's by grace. Because of grace, we must never overestimate our gifting. But I need to caution us, too, when I say that, because oftentimes some of us won't overestimate our gifting, but will underestimate our gifting. And it's just as important we don't go that direction either. Because of grace, we must never overestimate our gifting, but because of grace, we must never underestimate our gifting either. In other words, others are not greater than you in the church, and you are not a nobody in the church. Others are not greater than you in the body of Christ, and you are not a nobody in the body of Christ. But there is this second principle that I want us to hone in on that deals with that very issue. The second principle that we need to have to help us exercise humility in the church as we exercise our spiritual gifts, Christian to Christian. Second principle is this. The first principle is the principle of grace, right? We got that. We've heard that. We heard last week. We heard it again now this week. We're up to speed on where we were. Now here we are again. The second principle is, and that's the principle of the group. The principle of the group. Don't make fun of me. My alliteration is trying to stay with G's here. The first is grace. Everything is grace. It's all of grace. The second is group, or we could say it this way. The church is the body of Christ. That's what we're talking about. The church as a body, the group. You notice here in verses 4 and 5, this is where this principle is, is brought out. You notice in verses 4 and 5, you first come to the doctrine, and then you come to the illustration. Verse 4 is the doctrine of the body. And then verse 5 is the working out of that doctrine through you and I who make up the body. That's the idea. That's how Paul is laying this out. It's very important doctrine in the New Testament, this doctrine of the body. Or we call it the doctrine of the church. The doctrine of the Christian church and that being the body. It's a very important doctrine within Scripture. And listen, we have to have a biblical understanding of the doctrine of the church, or we, as individual Christians, are going to run headlong into all kinds of different directions. We're going to go all kinds of different ways, especially when it comes to the use of our spiritual gifts. If we don't understand the doctrine of the church, we're going to go all kinds of different directions when, it, when we think about how we use our spiritual gifts. There are examples of this abuse all over the place and misunderstanding of this doctrine, and they have caused all kinds of problems in the church. In fact, the Charismatics and the Pentecostals put an overemphasis on the sign gifts in the church. Sign gifts, the miracles, speaking in tongues, the, the miraculous kinds of things. And therefore, because they put an overemphasis on those things, they teach that everybody needs to speak in tongues. Probably heard that, right? 
And when you, there's a Pentecostal church, everybody seems to desire or want to speak in tongues. They even hold classes to teach how to speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, then you haven't gotten the Spirit or you don't have enough faith, they say. When you do, when you finally get there, then you'll receive a second blessing of the Spirit. Why do they do that? Because of a misunderstanding of the doctrine of the body and the reality of grace. To say the least of the fact that they take passages from the book of Acts that are descriptive as God's redemptive work and development and movement of his redemptive plan going from the Jews to the Gentiles. And they make those passages prescriptive rather than descriptive. They make them prescriptive for every Christian, for every church. And the result in the church is simply chaos. The result in the church is all kinds of confusion. The people don't know what to do. and They don't know where they're at. They don't know why they're there. and They don't know what's going on. And this was exactly the problem with the believers in Corinth that the Apostle Paul was dealing with. Right? Paul deals with the doctrine of the church being the body of Christ when he wrote 1 Corinthians. He's writing to them about the church, how to function in the church, especially when you come to chapter 12 through 14, the classic chapter on gifts. When you read those, it's about the church. And what Paul taught to the Corinthians is the same thing that the Apostle Paul is teaching here. In other words, when there are troubles in the church over the exercise of spiritual gifts... What is true is that not only have the people not understood the truth concerning spiritual gifts, but beyond that is the fact that they have a defective ecclesiology. They have a defective understanding of the church. That's what ecclesiology means, the doctrine of the church, the study of the church. Ecclesia is the word you find in the Scriptures in the New Testament for the church, the assembly. So when we say ecclesiology, we mean the study of the church. Where there's a defective understanding of the church, you're going to have oftentimes a defective operation of the spiritual gifts. So we here must understand that if we're going to have a real unity within the church, if we're going to have a real church that operates and functions appropriately, then we must understand this doctrine of the body. Now, there's a whole lot of aspects. In other words, there's a whole lot of branches, if you will, to this doctrine. And the one that Paul is primarily concerned about here is the operation of spiritual gifts. How we operate within the body, how do we function in our spiritual gifts? But we're not going to understand this aspect if we don't first understand the nature of the body or the nature of the church. And his way of explaining it is by way of this analogy of the body of Christ. It's the body that represents the church. It's the body that is the analogy, the illustration that Paul is using of who we are. We, we are the church and our gathering together represents that. 
It's what we read about in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. That's why I read that this morning. I wanted to get our mindset. I wanted to get our minds ready to receive and to hear that kind of thing. Have our thinking there. That there is a reality by which all of us, by way of gifting, are to be used within the body for the building up of the group. The whole. Christ is the head. It's from Him that the whole body is being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causing the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Ephesians 4.16 All the terminology within that very sentence is about togetherness, usefulness, Building up, being used, supplying, bringing to, unity, unity, unity. So it's a great analogy that Paul uses when he talks about the body. We want to understand the nature of the church. We want to understand how to function or how the church is to function. Then a good way in doing that is to consider the nature and character and function of the human body. So Paul is using and so Paul here, here begins by saying, if you're to be right in your heart and mind about the exercise of your spiritual gift that you've received by grace in the church, if we who are the church, each one of us, are going to avoid overestimating ourselves and underestimating others, if we're going to not become jealous and envious with others because of their spiritual gifting, and maybe we don't have that spiritual gifting, we really wanted that spiritual gifting. If we're going to not be taken captive by those feelings that cause division in the church, then the best thing to do is to understand something about the working of the human body. Realize that it's a picture concerning the truth of the nature of the church. Now, with that said, notice first that Paul tells us that in the body there is an organic unity. There's an organic unity. Notice verse 4, For just as we have many members in one body. Organic unity is simply this. There is a relationship between the individual parts that work for the harmony of the whole. Let me say that again. Organic unity simply means this. There is a relationship between the individual parts that work for the harmony of the whole. Understand what that means. We have to understand that the body is not just a collection of independent parts that are loosely attached. That's not what we are. That's not what your human body is. The physical body is not made up of, get this, it's not made up of toes that have just been simply stuck on things called feet. It's not made up of feet that have been simply stuck on what we call legs. And those two different legs are not loosely attached to a thing called a hip. You could go on. Our physical bodies are not like a a train on a railroad track, right? Whereby a train has an engine, a train has all kinds of cars, and those cars are loosely attached to one another outwardly, but they have no organic unity. 
See, in the body, your parts have a vital relationship with each other. What's that mean? That means there's a living connection. There's a living connection between the parts of our body with the other parts of our body. We're not like a train where the togetherness is just this external coupling that hooks us together and we get pulled along by this external coupling. But if there is no external coupling, we're not together. No, that's not how the body works. The body has this living connection between the parts of our body. There is a unity between the parts that is provided by a blood system and a nervous system. You have a heart, right? And our heart pumps blood, and that blood goes to all the individual parts of our body. Christ is the head. The whole body is supplied by Christ. In the physical body, our brain sends signals through the nervous system, and that goes out to our individual parts. So that when you drop something on your foot, when you get up late at night and you're maneuvering your way to the restroom and that foot hits that corner of the bedpost, see, you all know, see, you're right there, you know, you know. And the little toe is the one that took the brunt of it. And your brain through the nervous system tells you of that injury. And you feel the pain. Acutely you feel the pain. And in your helpfulness, you're trying to remain quiet so you don't wake the rest of the house up because in that pain, the pain has told your brain now to tell your mouth to go ahead and scream. And so your lungs fill with air and you get ready to exhale with that scream and your hands attend to the injury. And your brain processes all of that and receiving through the eyes so that you might see the extent of the damage to that little piece of stuff that you weren't thinking of three seconds before. That unimportant little appendage on the side of your foot that really is meaningless to you unless you get a small little hangnail there. You see, Paul isn't giving us an anatomy lesson here, but the point that he's making is that the body is not a collection of many members that are loosely and externally attached. In fact, the body is more important than its individual parts. The body is more important than its individual parts. And it's because of some having forgotten this principle that the evangelical church at large has fallen into, like an old house, into disrepair. You see problems in evangelicalism because people have forgotten this very principle. This is part of the reason why it's so important as much as we can to ensure that we are all part of the church by way of being members and those members are actually Christian. This is why we spend so much time trying to find out whether those who come to this church and want to join with us are actually believers. If they're not believers, then there's only an external attachment. There is no internal 
blood flowing between us. There is no internal connection. There is no organic unity at all. And in the end, it will just destroy the place. The true church is a gathering of Christians. It's not simply a gathering of people. We could gather a lot of people, do a lot of things to gather a lot of people to do a lot of different things. The church isn't just a gathering of humans. Even a gathering of humans who say they believe in God. That's not a church. People who go through some kind of ritual they call a service. That's not a church. No, the church is made up of true Christians. Christians of which Christ is the head. And it's Christ that has brought them. Christ has brought them into the church. Christ brought them into the church. And therefore, they have an organic relationship to the head. And because they have an organic relationship to the head, they have an organic relationship to every other part. So notice what Paul says in verse 4, because he goes on to say that even though each and every part is organically linked, just as we have many members in one body, nevertheless, he says, there is a variety of parts. All the members do not function the same way. Now that shouldn't surprise us, right? We're many parts made up the whole, we're organically linked, but all the parts don't function the same way. That makes sense to us. We know that from the physical body. While the body is one, while we have one human body that's a unit, the unit's made up of all kinds of different parts. Each and every one of us has a variety of different parts that make up our body, our whole body. And even within those parts, there are even greater subdivisions of parts. So there's parts within your body, and within those parts, there's subparts within that part that makes up that unity, and that unity is part of the whole unity. That's the same way within the church. We have unity as a whole and giftedness that cloisters together by way of their giftedness. Some of us have the spiritual gift given by God that exercises itself in the human talent of singing. So they gather together and we're blessed as they honor God through their gifting as we are raised up to places before God in worship as they, through their voices, sing. You see, this is the one, one of the places where the charismatics get it wrong. Because many within those churches get the idea that all people have to function the same way. That's why they say all people need to speak in tongues. We all have to have the same function. Now, I'm not saying that when I say the charismatics believe all people must function in tongues, that tongues is a biblical reality today. I'm simply using it as an illustration. Don't think that I'm saying that I believe tongues are active. If you want to hear my teaching on that, go get the Recordings on 1 Corinthians. So if there's no variety, this is the idea, if there's no variety within the church, if there's no variety of function, then the body's in deep trouble, isn't it? If the parts are all the same, there's no variety in the parts, then we're in trouble. 
In other words, if my heart in my physical body no longer wants to be the heart and it wants to function as the brain, I got a serious problem. Just think right now for a moment. If your muscles who are apart, but they have multiple subparts, there's a lot of different muscles. If those muscles decided right now, I no longer want to be a muscle, I want to be a bone. Makes the word, boy, that guy's a stiff. I'm really, I'm really home, doesn't it? We'd all be just like pillars, immovable. We see the trouble. Right? There's a great thing that God has designed into the physical body. Variety. It's the same thing He designed into the church. Where we all have many members, we all, just as we have many members in one body, just like our bodies, we have many members. And all the members don't have the same function. We all don't do the same thing. There's a unity, and that unity is, ex- is expressed in variety. That's the idea. Now that is simply to say then that when it comes to us in the church, when it comes to the body of Christ, you and I, all of us here this morning, members of this church, Christians who are here in this body, God, by His grace, has given us variety which is to be expressed in unity. An organic unity with one another that is expressed through the grace of God by gifting you in a variety of different ways. So we have a unity that is expressed through variety and a variety in unity. That's the idea. We are members of one body, but we don't all have the same function. And the point that the Apostle Paul is making here is that each one may be different, but each one is important. Each one may be different, but each one is absolutely important. Now that's why I said last Lord's Day, and I hope you wrote it down, I said before you fall asleep this morning during the sermon, you need to know this, remember this one part, that there is nothing more important for your spiritual growth and the glory of God that you be at the gathering of the saints in the local body. That's why I said that. Why? So that the functioning... And your functioning through your gift builds up the other parts. And so that through their functioning, you are built up by their functioning within their individual parts so that the whole is strengthened. You see? You grow in your spiritual life through the functioning of your spiritual gift and the receiving of the function of other spiritual gifts within the body. You can never say, I don't need to be with the people of the church today. And really, I don't have a big place in the church, so it's no big deal. I won't be missed. You can never rightly say that. I remember some years ago when I was in seminary, I had a seminary colleague who was regularly not with the people of the church, even though he was going to seminary, and I asked him, I said, why don't, why don't you come? And he said, well, I, you know, I'm not ministering anybody in the church there. You know, I, I, I'm busy. I got homework. I got things like that. He, well, he, he didn't work. He had a wife with no kids, and his wife worked to put him through school. I don't know how busy he was. 
There were plenty of other guys I knew who had wives, children, work, did all kinds of things, and they seemed to be able to be there. And I said, listen, you don't get the, you don't get the responsibility and the privilege to decide when God uses you. You've been gifted by God to be in the body of Christ. You're here. You need to be used. Who knows how you might encourage somebody across the sanctuary, even though they never come talk to you, just because they see you here. Just because they see you. See, you don't get to arbitrarily decide when God uses you. So you can never say, I don't, I don't need to be with the people today because I really don't have a big place in it anyway. No, you're absolutely necessary for the proper functioning and the growth of the whole. You see, the principle of grace ought to be in your mind and the principle of group ought to be in your mind. You may be only a part, but you are part of the whole. And we all need you. We all need you. Aren't you glad when you woke up this morning and slammed your toe on the bedside, that little toe that you didn't think much of, you just didn't go outside and take a pair of nice sharp scissors and just chop that thing off because it's not necessary anyway? No, it's necessary. God put it there. I don't know why it's there. I don't know why. I think it's there just to bang into the bed. I think that's why it's there. But God put it there so that I would think about being humble. Sometimes, listen, you may be here as the small toe on a foot, but sometimes when you get banged, you scream loud and everybody else notices. And it causes us all to rush in and help. I hear this often from others. I hear it from some who say that, oh, you know what? I want to go to other lands. I want to, I, I want to be used by God in such a way. I want to go and serve people in other lands to work in the gospel ministry there. And yet here in the body, here in the local body, they neglect to be used. Not being used at all. I remember talking to a young guy years ago before I even went to seminary. I was talking to a young guy who had the desire. He wanted to go to Asia to be a missionary. Young 20-year-old guy. Sharp kid wanted to wanted to be a missionary in Asia. I said to him, "Well, what, that, that's a great desire. What a wonderful thing—the desire to go over to Asia and minister to people and share the gospel." I said, "But what are you doing now? What are you doing here in this body? Are you using your spiritual gift right here in the local body that God sovereignly put you in right now?" No. I said, well, don't think God's ever going to send you over somewhere else to be used in a body somewhere else if you're not using yourself here, what God has gifted you with now. But look at look at what Paul says. Paul says in verse 5, we, we who are many are one body in Christ. One body in Christ. We have an organic unity. Christ is the head, and yet... Even though we are individual by way of function, we have to function with the knowledge that we are intimately linked to one another. Did you get that? Even though we are individual by way of function, 
God gives us gifts. That's an individual gift. It's to function. But we have to remember that that function, we, we think about it with the knowledge that we are intimately linked to others. It's an organic linkage. In other words, they need me and I need them. Guess what? You can't operate your spiritual gift outside the body. You realize that? And don't say, well, we all belong to the universal church. True. True. But God orchestrates His people through the local body. And that's where your gift is to be used, in the local body. You can't operate your spiritual gift outside of that in any kind of way. Why? Because your spiritual gift is for the building up of the body. And since that's the case, without the body, you will wither. You will wither. You will dry up. And without you functioning in the body, the body gets sick. Listen, try to remove your right arm and leave it beside you at home and say, okay, go ahead and be my right arm while I'm over here. doesn't work. doesn't work real well. Without the vital internal interaction, the functioning together, the one-on-one, the giftedness being used, your muscle telling the arm, the arm reacting, and all this, you can't be used. It's the same way in the church. Your arm will die, and your body will be sick. And so not only is it important that we function, but it's also important to understand we don't function for us. We function for the whole. We function for the whole deal. Everybody. We function for the whole. And knowing that and doing that drives me to humility. It drives me to remember who I am. It drives me to remember what God has gifted me for. Why? Because it causes me to think it's not about me. It's about the whole. What I do, how I do it, where I do it, when I do it, 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 it affects the whole. And when it's about the whole then I understand that I'm necessary. I'm necessary for the proper functioning of the whole. And I'll offer myself, when I understand that, I'll offer myself, as Paul said, as a living sacrifice. Saying, God, use me. Use me however you wish to use me within this body. And whatever He desires to do with me, I'll be okay with that doesn't matter if one time I'm elevated and another time I'm eclipsed. doesn't really matter. I just am what I am. By the grace of God, I just want to offer myself as a body, a living, holy sacrifice. Something that is offered to God for God to use. And I worship God in doing that. My mind is changed. I think like Christ. I want to respond like Christ. I know I'm part of the body. I want to be used in the body. And so I offer myself to be used. doesn't matter what it is. Why? Because it's about the whole. It's not about me. Remember our definition of humility? I'm nothing. God is everything. I'm nothing. God is everything. His desires are everything. 
Therefore, I can never operate independent of the whole. I can never be out here doing my own deal. I can never be out here saying, oh, I got a ministry and it's my own little thing. I can't be doing that. We can only act and live to the glory of God and the growth of all when we think of our gifts as a gift of God's grace for the good of the whole. But Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Don't have this high estimation about yourself. Have sober judgment. You're part of the body. There's an organic unity within the body. You have a function, and that function is to be functioning within the whole. That's Paul's point. That's what he's making here. Paul says, I, I want you to listen to me because, uh, because I understand what I am in the body, and it's by grace. And so you need to listen. It's the way God's designed it. He's given some as apostles and teachers. You need to listen. That's God. But, it's, but I'm no better than you. I'm in the same boat you are. We're just rowing down the same river. We're trying to get this whole thing to be Christ-like. We're trying to show the Christ-likeness, and so we just function. We function in coordination and in connection in this understanding in our mind with one another. And therefore, I can't just function independently of everybody. We only act and live to the glory of God and to our growth when we think of our gifts from the grace of God and the reality that it works for the whole. So this truth must be at the forefront of our minds. We have to concentrate on it. We have to think about it. We have to process it. Not on a personally perceived importance kind of way, Rather, on the reality that whatever our function in the body, it is of grace, and it's for the group's good. For the group's good. Have you ever wondered, just as a silly kind of illustration, how the bottom of your foot feels about being the bottom of your foot? I've never thought about that. It just came to my mind right now. I thought, hmm. Uh, that's that's a part of the body I wouldn't want to be. It's the part that steps in things, receives little attention, gets cold a lot, especially in the winter time. It's the farthest from the heart. I mean, come on, I don't want to be that. The foot, it never complains; just does what it does. Thankfully, it does what it does. You have to make sure that there's no spiritual sickness in me so that the whole body becomes sick. I have to make sure that my mind is thinking right, that I'm thinking rightly about my functioning in the church, that I'm necessary no matter what the size of my gifting is. I'm necessary. I trust that God will give us understanding in this. Paul gives an illustration in verses 6 through 8. We're going to leave it for next time, but you notice what he says. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. You see, Paul returns right there to it. This is the reality. We have gifts. They're different gifts. And God has done it by His grace. That means that every individual who is part of the body has been brought here and given by God for this body. You have something we need. And we have something you need. 
And we need to function together in that organic unity so that the body of Christ is healthy and others see the gospel. They see Christ in us. Paul's going to get to the working this out, starting in verse 9. And I find it rather ironic that he says love without hypocrisy. That's the first thing. Love without hypocrisy. I was thinking about this this week. Why would Paul have to say that? Why would Paul have to begin there? Love without hypocrisy, probably because we love with hypocrisy. And the only way to love without it is to remember who you are, that you're nobody. It's about Christ, not about you. We'll get more of that next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the privilege of being able to just open your word and think about these things. Lord, I trust it was clear in the hearts and minds of your people. I trust we understand these things. Help us to evaluate ourselves, our own lives in reference to you, knowing that you have given us gifts to be used. Allow your headship to rule in us through the functioning of this body, how you have designed it so that we might be a pleasure and an honor and a glory to you. We'll thank you for that. Regardless of what happens, we'll thank you that we could be a part. We could be a part in the exclamation of your gospel to a lost and dying world. So Lord, thank you for humbling us. Cause us to continue to be humble before you as your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.